what I heard in my head before I ever tried to do it was I heard a bluegrass banjo playing Bach. That's what I knew in my mind, my mind's ear, if you will. You know, it's like, that's what I want to hear. I don't want to like add three strings to the banjo and put not, you know, I just, I wanted to hear that bluegrass style banjo with picks playing Bach. Folks, did you know that nine out of 10 people suffer daily from ABDS? Now that is medical jargon for acute banjo deficiency syndrome. But I'm here to tell you the good news. The good news is that the number one scientifically proven cure for ABDS is listening to lots and lots of episodes of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. So welcome in. I'm Keith Billick, and I'm so happy that you are uh, joining me for this and hopefully many more episodes. And you know who else is working hard for the cure to ABDS is Richard Chirette Goose. And Richard, I sincerely hope I didn't mess up your name too badly, but I do sincerely appreciate your generous support of the podcast. Richard is today's VIP listener of the show. That's the uh, very important pickers. We get, we have all sorts of acronyms for this episode, apparently. But uh, anyway, I do have a group of lovely VIP supporters who I appreciate very much. And those are the folks that have gone over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. And they have generously signed up to support the show by throwing a few dollars per month my way and also receive tremendous prizes in return. So once again, head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself. And special thanks once again to Richard Shirat Guth, today's VIP supporter of the episode. Other great ways to support the show. Follow me on all the social medias. You can find me on the YouTube, the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter. I'm out there. So uh, please be in touch that way. You can also email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Love hearing from you listeners. You know, the main other news from uh, here at Picky Fingers HQ is I'm going to be out and about over the next several weeks and would love to see some of you in person. Uh, my first stop is going to be at IBMA. That's the International Bluegrass Music Association annual convention that happens down in Raleigh, North Carolina. I will be there all week in my exhibit hall booth with my good friend Daniel Patrick from the Mandolins and Beer podcast. So if you are in Raleigh for that event, please swing by, say hi, pick a tune, uh, buy a t-shirt. And by the way, there's going to be some brand new colors of t-shirts making their debut at IBMA. So come check those out. Another very cool thing for IBMA is I've been asked to moderate a panel for the business conference regarding podcasting. Apparently they think I know a thing or two about that. So uh, we'll find out, I suppose. So look out for me there as well. Uh, I'll also be teaching banjo at the Great Lakes Music Camp Uh, Head over to greatlakesmusic.org to find out more about that fantastic uh, music camp, which is always one of my favorite weekends of the year. Not even joking. And needless to say, in addition to a steady diet of Picky Fingers Banjo podcast episodes, attending IBMA or Great Lakes Music Camp are surefire ways to conquer your ABDS symptoms.
Today's featured guest is John Bullard. I'm really happy to be able to feature John on this show because he really has a unique place in the banjo landscape. He is probably the most well-known and accomplished uh, interpreter and transcriber of classical music for the five-string fingerstyle banjo. So this interview will likely feature some uncharted territory for a lot of us, including myself. I love classical music, but I, I admittedly know very little about it. So this interview is very educational for me, and uh, I always enjoy hearing new and interesting things being played on the banjo, and uh, I think you will enjoy that as well. So please give a warm picky fingers welcome to John Bullard. I'm from Goochland, Virginia, which is just west of Richmond. And uh, I play classical music on the banjo, mostly, even mm -hmm. though I still play some bluegrass. Cool. How did you get started on any of that? How did the banjo make its way into your hands? Well, my dad was a guitar player. Not, mm -hmm. not professional, but he played around the house. Um, I guess he played, like, tunes from the 40s or something. It's kind of those kitschy songs that he would okay. sort of sing. And... Um, like Shine On, Harvest Moon, stuff like that. And uh, so so there was some music and guitars around the house. But uh, what really did it for me was dueling banjos. I'm one of those guys. Oh, wow. Okay. So when I was, you know, a young teenager, the before I ever heard about the movie, I heard that tune on the radio. And, and man, it just – in fact, I was with my dad driving along, and uh, that – started coming on the radio and he, yeah. he had heard it before so he knew the whole thing and he got all excited and pulled over on the side of the road literally and turned up the volume he goes oh you got to hear this oh great you know and i was cool. like what in the heck is this you know <laughs> with all the tuning and and slow uh roll into the tune and then uh -huh. of course they launch into it but by the time that was over i was like i've got to learn how to do that you know what do you think it was that i mean i mean it sounded like it caught your dad's ear, too. What do you think well, it was that was so yeah. magical for both of you? I think part of it was seeing how excited my dad was about it. Oh, yeah. You know? And then, of course, the thing that happens to all banjo players is when you hear that sparkly, rolling, metallic, whatever that thing is, the Earl thing, which, yeah. of course, that wasn't Earl, but, I mean... It's that style of playing. Yeah, that yeah. style of playing, it just, you know, it's, like, irresistible to... I guess, I don't know whether we're genetically predisposed or whatever it is, but uh, it it really hit me. Yeah, cool. How, how uh, Say again, how old you were when that happened? I was somewhere between 12 and 13. Oh, great. So, I mean, if your dad was that excited about it and you wanted to do it, I imagine he was maybe pretty supportive of oh, yeah. you finding yeah, a banjo parents, and starting to I mean, play. like, almost immediately started looking for a banjo teacher, which back then it, it was kind of, they weren't, as uh, prevalent as they are now. Yeah. And they finally found this guy uh, named Arthur Rucker. Mm -hmm. And Arthur, strangely enough, taught music lessons on what would be like a paper route. So he would he would go to somebody's house and teach them and then go to the next person and so on. But the problem with that is once you're a little bit late, you know, so... Everything, yeah. You right. know, so like when I had my banjo lessons, Arthur was always an, at least an hour late. <laughs> oh, no. And then he would stay... You were, you were toward the end of the route? Yeah, yeah, and then he would stay way longer than he was supposed to stay. You know, it was like that. But he um, he was a, a great player, and he played several instruments, but um, 
he had a, I remember he had like a fifties bow tie master tie. Yeah, cool. And um, so, so he came and he immediately said, you got to get the Earl Scruggs book and that's what we're going to do. And he, that's what we did. We started, you know, with Cripple Creek and started doing that. And of course, at the same time, when you turned on the TV, you would hear Earl on the Beverly Hillbillies, Beverly Hillbillies right. or uh, Petticoat Junction. Okay. You know, and and then, then there was Foggy Mountain Breakdown was in Bonnie and Clyde. All that was kind of in in the same era, sort of. So, but I got really obsessed with Earl and hmm. uh, just, you know, would spend hours looking at the book and listening. It had that, the album where he tuned, you know, he goes through the book, basically. Yeah. He tunes the banjo and goes through the licks and stuff. And I just, you know, I just was obsessed with all that. That's cool. And um, when I look back on that, I'm really grateful that that's what he did. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but to somebody who maybe aspires to to play in a similar fashion to you, do you still think that starting with Earl, even if they have no intention of playing bluegrass, is that still a good physical, fundamental foundation? I mean, I think so, personally, because I, I think it just does something for your right hand that is kind of hard to find other ways I, yeah. I think um i've you know but but then again if there's somebody that knows that that's not what they want to do i think it's kind of ridiculous to go through the motions of trying to learn some style that that you don't want to really play so i i wouldn't advise somebody that if they know that they want to play classical or they know they want to play jazz yeah or or whatever whatever might be in between there that that they have to learn. I mean, that would like that would be like telling you know a classical guitar player, well, you're going to have to learn how to play like Charlie Christian first. Mm -hmm. Then you know it's kind of ridiculous that way. But um, I do think you know the bluegrass, the the Scrugg style, gives you something in the right hand that is hard to get otherwise. Now yeah. I'll admit that my right hand has gone by the wayside largely because I don't play as much bluegrass. I still I still try to play some Earl tunes, you know, all the time. But, you know, th th that's the thing about bluegrass is it's so right-hand intensive. It's almost like an athletic event for your right hand. It's easy to be out of shape. And it's very easy to be out of shape. For sure. What were the next strides that you make? Was there a period where you were trying to jam with people? Did you have other people around who you were able to participate in this kind of music with? Yeah, um... You know, I was still am, but I was a very introverted kid, and I was really happy to sit on the sofa and try to sound like Earl. Uh -huh. I mean, by myself, I was really, you know, I, I I wasn't like chomping at the bit to go play with other people. Mm -hmm. I remember my my teacher saying, "Oh man, you got to get out and go to some festivals and do these banjo competitions." You know, and I'm like, competition? That's not what at all what I kind of feel this is about. So I yeah, I kind of recoiled at at that idea but the good thing is my dad played guitar and he played sort of a style where he would play alternating bass notes basically with his thumb mm -hmm. and then strum in between basically like what lester flat was doing in a oh, way wow. okay. although my dad didn't use a thumb pick and my dad wasn't playing bluegrass per se but his style of guitar playing included a ba basically a bass line, and he would walk up to C or walk down, you know, so he just yeah. inherently did that. Uh, even though he was playing with his bare fingers, he didn't use a flat pick or a thumb pick or anything. Oh, wow. But we we could play together, and as soon as I started 
to be able to play Cripple Creek, you know, we would play that together and then, you know, whatever tunes I learned, he would, he would try to play. You said your instructor, and I'm, I'm forgetting Arthur. his name already, Arthur, encouraged you to go enter some contests, which it sounds like you did not do. No. But in a way, that must have been pretty flattering to hear that he, yeah. he thought that you were worthy enough to, to it was. even consider doing that. It was. I was kind of surprised. And, um, you know, it was it was encouraging to, to go, mm-hmm. oh, gosh, I guess he thinks I'm good enough to, to go do something like that. But, yeah. You know. Do you remember um, what it might have been about your playing that made him have that kind of confidence in you? Were you expressing some amount of creativity or, or just... No, I, I don't think I was expressing a lot of creativity. I think I just picked up on what he was showing me pretty quickly and could mm. could do, you know, could play Cripple Creek or Foggy yeah. Mountain Breakdown or whatever it was. And, um, you know, but I, I wasn't at the point where I was inventing licks and stuff like that. I, I figured out pretty quickly how the bluegrass lick thing works, you know, where you have this palette of licks and that you know you learn you know if you learn a half a dozen of earl's tunes you start to realize oh this lick goes here and it can go there and you know it's start you know so i started mixing and matching and I, of course yeah and i think i probably if any creativity happened it was just by maybe writing some tunes or oh, something wow. like that you know do you remember anything that you <laughs> that you wrote back in those days or was it- well i remember one It was just like a weird. So I mean, th- th- that's a, a role-based piece, yeah. but it's all—it's definitely already some tonalities that we don't always hear. On True, Foggy Mountain banjo and True. stuff like that. Um, what ended up being your other banjo influences? I guess at some point we're gonna come to a, a shift in your in your banjo focus, but how far did you take that, and what did you end up uh, doing on the bluegrass side of things? Once I was pretty comfortable in the Scrugg style, Arthur, then I think the next thing he really turned me on to was Vic Jordan. And um, Vic Jordan played with Lester Flatt's band after Earl and Lester broke up. Um, and, and I think he played with Jim and Jesse before that. That sounds right. Arthur was like, you got to get this album, Pick Away, yeah. by Vic Jordan. And, and he, t- you know, he got me to learn a couple of those tunes, which were melodic. Now, now he mixed, you know, and he was doing the... Those uh, pentatonic, mm-hmm. but uh, but he was doing a lot of melodic and Scruggs mixed together. Okay, um, so that was pretty intense, and I, I mean, I really liked that Vic Jordan album, and I listened to that constantly. Um, was that your first exposure to a melodic that was my style first player? exposure to melodic stuff? Then at some point. He told me to get Tony Trishka's ba- book called Melodic Banjo, yeah, which actually had a Vic Jordan tune in it. I can't remember which one it was, but it did start started with that 
and then it went into the tune because that was the first thing I learned. That was the first melodic thing okay. I learned, and then I then I went into more major sounding stuff. But yeah, that, blue, um, that bluesy run. Yeah, yeah, and I thought, and that was also during that time was when Bobby Thompson was on Hee Haw doing all that stuff. Yeah, very similar type of thing too. And then, but then after Vic Jordan, he got me to transcribe some tunes off of the uh, New Dimensions in Bluegrass, which. When I got it, it just said Dueling Banjos Deliverance, uh-huh. it was, but it was the same album. It was, and I remember learning up. Uh, you know, yeah. that, and, and then there were a couple other ones that I learned off of that. And those he had me transcribe like off the record. Wow, the um, exact banjo part, or yeah. ju- or just kind of no, find the melody sort of thing. No, the exact banjo part. Wow. And I remember, I remember he challenged. I mean, I don't know that it was a challenge, but I remember him saying, "I want you to listen to that and write down the tablature to the you know to the banjo part." Yeah, and and I didn't get it exactly right. And he helped me correct it, but um, but I got pretty close, and and yeah. that that really helped a lot. In what way do you think that helped you? It it got me to start, you know, that process of hearing the strings and the notes of the banjo mm-hmm. by themselves, and then of course when I think back on it, I remember them like slowed down, but not slowed down by my finger being on the turntable, uh-huh. so it wasn't a consistent speed. It was that warbly. Oh no. But I remember getting used to hearing, okay, that's, you know, I, I could hear, oh, that's third string open or that, you know, there's that liquor. You could start to pick those things out pretty easily and that, mm-hmm. that you know, helped. Yeah, almost process of elimination. You know, you got these yeah. open strings and you got that and now you just have to find those like two other random notes that happened in between. Yeah. That's funny. You know, eventually we're leading up to you becoming a, Interested in classical music. Yeah. It, so is that took, jumping quite ahead? Yeah, it took quite a while. Um, I guess the next sort of phase of things for me was uh, I went went to college. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was, you know, playing the same stuff, Scruggs-style stuff. I'd written some tunes. and But, you know, I hadn't really gone much past that. I had played with my dad, and I had played with some friends in high school, but nothing, you know, nothing serious at all. Um, and then I went to college, and by the time I went to college, I was getting really interested in electric guitar. Okay, I was pretty smitten with the Allman Brothers, oh, sure. and I sort of wanted to be Dickie Betts, uh-huh. uh, you know. All yeah. that, and so I was doing a lot of that stuff. And uh, when I went off to college, and I'm still still playing some banjo, but what was interesting is I went to this really small college in in Southern Virginia, um, liberal arts college, no music program or anything like that. But I, in the same year that I was, was this guy Scott Four, mm. who is a monster guitar player. Mm. Um, Scott's won like every flat picking competition like probably three times over oh wow I mean, he's really well known for flat picking um and he just happened to be that be there he scott's from um uh, withville virginia which is down near galax basically okay and um anyway 
I, you know, he, we discovered each other and we played some and that I remember playing with Scott and, and going, Oh, some people get really good at this stuff, <laughs> you know? And, uh, so you were back to the banjo again at that point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When I played with him, it was, I was playing the banjo. Yeah, we, cool. we played some and I, and that was like a, I was like, okay, this, he's like really good and I'm not. And, um, so there's a whole nother level or more to, to all this, but, um, so that was kind of a good eye opener. But what was interesting is uh, Scott and I think I played in a little rock band. Played a few gigs in college. We played. I played electric guitar in yeah. that. Um, but that was of no consequence, really. Yeah. But Scott found out. I, I can't remember if it was our freshman year or sophomore year or something. But he came. I remember he, he came up to me and he goes, "Hey, man, did you?" here there's a music class. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, there's a music theory class. I just signed up for it. I was like, really? He was like, yeah. He was like, I'll, I'll take you to the guy that's teaching. I was like, okay. So we like traipse across campus and turned out it was a music theory class that the choir director, there was a men's choir, which I didn't even know when, you know, yeah. but he was the one teaching the class. And, uh -huh. and Scott was like, hey, here's John. He wants to sign up for the class too. And this kind of curmudgeonly old guy, kind of looked down and he goes, well, what instrument do you play, young man? And I was like, well, I play the banjo. <laughs> and the guy like freaked out, his guy, eyes got really big and he he turned turned away on his heel. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. And he literally wouldn't let me take the class. Might have been the worst possible answer you could have yeah. possibly given him. But yeah. I guess, you know, looking back, he was, he was one of those, you know, snobbish classical musician guys. But he was fine with letting Scott in with yeah, his guitar? Yeah, that, that was always a puzzle to me. All right. But um, I was really caught off guard by that. And I felt all this weird shame and got like, I was like, what the heck? And I just sort of let it go and walked away. I didn't push it or anything. Looking back on it, I'm like, I should have demanded, you know, that I... You know, it's funny that you say, I, I had actually a, a somewhat similar experience at um, where I went to college. And yeah, I just ended up thinking like... I thought these people's jobs were to like encourage me to yeah. do stuff. And it was just really strange to feel discouraged. It, it, it was very strange. And it, it was, you know, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but it was kind of traumatizing. And I was like, man, yeah, I've worked, I play an instrument. You know what I mean? It's not. Yeah. And this guy just totally like, you know, <laughs> crapped all over that. And yeah. uh, anyway, I, I didn't pursue it, but I felt, you know, I was like, I remember thinking, well, what, what is it about the banjo that I'm not supposed to like pursue music theory or, or any of that stuff? And I ended up getting really kind of obsessed with the whole thing. And I turned, as a result, turned into sort of a music lesson junkie. So this is like a super villain origin story exactly. kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I really, I, I remember, um, starting to get books and reading about music theory. I started yeah. to take piano lessons from another faculty member's wife. Hmm. I was like, I'm going to figure this stuff out. Yeah. And, I, you know, whatever this... Forbidden old, knowledge. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. What's behind the counter there? Uh, <laughs> but so I started taking these like baby piano lessons. It was like sort of the musical equivalent of C-Spot Run on the piano you know, falling leaves and these little baby songs. But I was like, hey, I'm learning how to read music. I was really like, this is cool. I'm learning how to read music. You know, so I took some piano lessons and then I started kind of figuring out, you know, like a few weird like rock type things on the piano. And I was like, ah, oh, this is really cool. Yeah. And um, I guess the next thing that happened was I, I graduated from that school and was back in, in Richmond. And I continued to take 
lessons from, like I started taking jazz guitar lessons from this old guy, Jerry Fields, that taught at a music store in downtown Richmond, and he was from the old big band era. Hmm. And he could read really well. Yeah. And uh, he taught me how to read on the guitar, which transfers over to the banjo. And um, they're both transposing mm-hmm. instruments. And um, and I remember you really being into those guitar. Now, I mean, I never got good at playing jazz guitar or piano or any of these. But I but every lesson kick I would get on, you know, I was learning something. Uh, yeah. Learning how to read and stuff like that. Learning about just learning how it's all set up. How it all works, how, yeah. the mechanics of music and stuff. And um, anyway, about, I think it was about 1985 or so, I uh, I had this roommate and he was like, man, you're you're so interested in all this music. Why don't you just go to music school? And I was like, I can't go to music school. I play the banjo. Right. You know, it was just like. You've it, already learned that lesson. I've already learned yeah. that lesson. <laughs> and uh, he was like, no, no, you know, because we were, I was living like five blocks from VCU, which is Virginia Commonwealth University. And they, at, especially at that time, had a great music program, really good jazz program and everything. And um, in fact, for a while, uh, Ellis Marcellus, hmm. who's Wynton Marcellus's dad, ran the jazz department sure. there. But uh, anyway, he, this roommate finally convinced me that I should go audition. And uh-huh. so I got in touch with the school and I went to an audition with a guitar, a, a steel string acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And... I auditioned for this guy, John Patakula, who is the head of the classical guitar department. And I, I remember I played Presbyterian guitar okay. by John Hartford. Yeah. And I played a, a tune that I'd learned from my jazz, that jazz guitar teacher. Uh, I think it was like Ain't Misbehaving or something. And I, you know, strummed the chords and I played a few lead things and then played the chords again. And that was kind of, I was like, okay, that's really all I got. But this is still for a classical guy. Yes, for a yeah. classical guy. And I remember, I remember I was shocked. John went, yeah, you've got a great facility. You're you're in. <laughs> you know, wow. I was like, whoa. And he goes, but I what, what I want you to do is I want you, this was like, I want you to get a classical guitar and start taking lessons so that when fall comes around, you know, you can be a classical guitar player. And and even though my my intended major was to be a composition major, but you still had to have a an instrument, a principal instrument, a principal yeah. instrument. So, I my, fortunately the most of the guitars my dad played were nylon string classical guitars. That's just kind of what he gravitated. So I got one of my dad's guitars, uh-huh. started taking lessons from John, the guy that I uh, auditioned with, and you know it was really it was really pretty cool. I I really kind of was like, wow, this is. Not bad. I kind of like this. Yeah. You know, uh, the only thing that was weird is I, I was starting to grow my fingernails out, mm. you know, because that's what they use instead of picks. Yeah. And that was kind of weird because when I put my, my banjo picks on, my fingernails hit the pick. Yeah, it was kind of weird. Funny, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I was like, okay, I, I can do this. And um, I really liked John. He was just really patient. And, and, and I was like getting introduced to this whole other thing in music which was like dynamics and phrasing you know he would stop me and say no you know we're here look at the score it says piano you know you need to play quiet here and then see over here it gets there's forte so it gets louder and i was like oh okay yeah (laughs) so i was kind of getting interested in that kind of stuff and um so i I that that fall i was in music school and you know i'm taking ear training and theory and music wow. history and all this stuff. And I, I, quite honestly, I was very much a fish out of water. I mean, I'm like, hmm. man, I'm a banjo player. And I'm in here, these cats are like 
playing Beethoven and uh, yeah, Villa Lobos on the guitar, and you know the people were like playing all this stuff, actually good, actually yeah. good, and reading <laughs> music and stuff, and I could barely read music, and it was intimidating. But there was something about it that I really. I don't know. It just felt like, yeah, this is. There's something here. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what, but I but I hung with it. It and, feels um, good to be learning things. It does feel good yeah. to be learning things. It really does. And somehow, somewhere along the way, maybe it was from doing all those music lessons with different people. I kind of lost that feeling of being embarrassed and like I don't know what I'm doing. And I kind of <laughs> got used to like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm coming for help. You know, yeah. I, I kind of embraced that. So I kind of got into that mindset. But what really the real kicker was. One of my teachers found out, classroom teachers found out that I played the banjo. And uh, I was like, oh, here we go again, you know? All right. (laughs) And he goes, hey, why don't you bring your banjo into class tomorrow? Because some of these kids probably have never heard a banjo. Yeah. Or certainly not in person. And I was like, okay. So I took my banjo in, and at the end of class, I played, you know, Cripple Creek and Little Darling Palamon or something like that. And um, was putting the banjo away, and this teacher came up and kind of leaned over and almost whispered in my ear. And he was like, have you ever thought about playing any Renaissance or Baroque music on the banjo? Because to me, the banjo sounded so much like a lute or a harpsichord even. And man, the light bulb went off. That had never occurred to you? That had never occurred to me. Wow. Because I I hadn't listened to classical music. I was just, when I got into this, taking these classical guitar lessons and starting in music school was the first time I was really exposed to Bach and Renaissance music and the lute and the harpsichord. Well, I guess I meant it had never occurred to you not not saying that the banjo was similar in sound to a lute or a harpsichord, but it had never occurred to you to try what you were doing on the guitar, uh, try putting that onto the banjo. Even it that, had, no, that wow. that because I was I had that was I was only in the, like you know my first semester of playing the guitar aside from the you know I had started in the summer so mm-hmm. I was really new at it so it it you know I was struggling to just get from lesson yeah. to lesson. Now, also at that point, I imagine most of these people who go to music school and are music majors and whatnot, that's um, them committing to that, hopefully as a, a profession of some sort. Did you have that mindset for yourself, or were you still just viewing that as like the thing you're kind of into? So might as well. No, uh, I think I, I think I sort of in the background. The reason I was willing to go to music school is because I felt like I wanted to do music, and I thought mm-hmm. this ain't going to happen with me just playing the banjo. Yeah, I got to figure something out. I got to learn composition. I got to learn something. I got to learn more about music if I'm going to do music. Yeah. You know. That's kind of what I was thinking. And I thought, the place you do that is music school. And I had this, you know, uh, vision that you go to music school and you are endowed with all this magical stuff. <laughs> and then you become, you know, golden and yeah. you can go do do anything. I could be a studio musician or something. Yeah. You know, of course, that's none of that is true. But there is the opportunity to learn a lot of stuff there that will help you in all aspects. So, and I kind of knew, I kind of figured that out. Um mm-hmm. So once this teacher suggested this thing of like Renaissance or Baroque music on the banjo, I mean, I just immediately, it was like instantaneously, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. That's amazing. Because I'd heard enough Bach and Renaissance stuff just at that point to realize that it was earthy and plucky and it had that, uh, gosh, that eternal poignancy to it. You know, and I was like, man, that just made a lot of sense. It would really work. And I could immediately, I could hear it. You know, I could hear it on the banjo. And so, 
But I didn't know enough about music and how it all worked to know how to go about it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I remember I like went to my room after that. I think I checked out a Scarlatti, you know, book of Scarlatti keyboard sonatas. And I thought, okay, here we go. And I opened it up and I was like, we're talking harpsichord, you know, like piano basically. Yeah. So massive range. Uh, Where do you even start? Counterpoint, all this stuff going on. And I I remember looking at it and I'd I'd get a line or two written out and I'd say, but how am I going to play this low stuff? And I was really like, oh man, I don't know how this is going to work. I didn't really (laughs) know enough to know about, you know, the Bach cello suites and that kind of stuff. And I think what happened when I, is I believe right about this time school let out for the summer. Mm Mm-hmm. So this would have been right in the spring of my first year there. And uh, lo and behold, that summer, I ended up making my first pilgrimage to the uh, Galax Fiddlers Convention. Interesting. Okay. Um, and actually, I, went, I played in the banjo contest, uh-huh. believe it or not, which was really weird. Hey folks, Keith here, just taking a quick break from the episode, but I'll be right back with the rest of it. I did just want to mention that if you are looking to have your dream banjo built, or if you just need some of the top quality components to add to a project or an existing banjo, I couldn't recommend anyone more than Sullivan Banjos. Sullivan has been one of the top names in the banjo industry for decades. And Eric Sullivan down in Alabama brings all that experience and adds his personal customized touch to make sure that you are getting the banjo of your dreams. Whether you are looking for a tried and true traditional design, or if you want to get a bit more uh, imaginative, chances are if you can dream it, Eric can build it. I know that's true because I've been playing my own Sullivan custom banjo since 2004. So give Eric Sullivan at Sullivan Banjos a call at 502-365-5022. Visit them on the web at sullivanbanjo.com or email at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com. Now, once you have that Sullivan Banjo in your hands, the best way to learn it that I recommend is with Peghead Nation's online streaming video courses. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and many other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out some of these banjo classes that they offer. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward Style Banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. All of these courses are going to include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tablature, play-along tracks, and plenty of songs to play along with. Now, the best part is that just for being a Picky Fingers listener, you are going to get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS, all one word, all lowercase, at checkout. Once again, pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS to get your first month free. And folks, another sponsor of the show and one of my favorite places on earth is Elderly Instruments up in Lansing, Michigan. Now, I worked there for about 10 years, and it's still where I go for all my banjo, guitar, and any other string instrument needs. So that should really tell you something. Elderly has been family-owned since 1972. 
and has grown to become the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments. So whether you are looking for your first beginner instrument or that hard-to-find vintage collectible, Elderly is going to have that, and they are also going to back it up with the best customer service in the business. So head over to Elderly.com to see their full inventory online. They ship worldwide, by the way. Or give them a call at 517-372-7880. And I, I remember I we you know I went with a couple guys and we got there and and by the time we were like set up and everything it was getting late and I remember wandering around in the campground the first night that I was there just like amazed at all the music going on I mean there was bluegrass and old time and Celtic and swing I mean it's just like everything uh-huh. you know and I had a little handheld tape recorder. And I was just going around and sticking my tape recorder in different groups and going, wow, that's really cool. And then mm-hmm. I'd go over to another one and go, wow, that's really cool. And I remember it was getting really late and I was like, okay, I, I'm, you know, and then I, I heard this band playing. I was like, wow, I got to check that out. And I went over there and this, this band was just, just killing it. Mm-hmm. And I'd never heard anything like it. And it turned out it was this band called the Laughing Crinoids. And they hmm. were for the most part, or at least two of them were biology majors. And a cr- apparently a crinoid is some kind of marine uh, critter that's <laughs> okay. called a crinoid. All right. And so they thought it was really funny to be called the laughing crinoids. Anyway, they were playing, I get the best way to, I mean, I, I later learned that it was all original stuff that, that the banjo player had written. Wow. And the banjo player was Fred Boyce, who. I'm not familiar. An unbelievable artist. Um, huh. He's not really playing much anymore. Um, in fact, now he's the uh, reptile guy at the Pine Knoll Shores Aquarium in North Carolina. Oh, cool. So he's like dealing with uh, alligators and snakes and stuff. And his favorite thing uh, is he does all this research and filming and photographing of cottonmouth moccasins, you know, the the venomous the snakes. Co- yeah. The snakes, yeah. So he's like obsessed with them. Interesting. But anyway, uh, so they were, they were playing this stuff that – the. I guess the most uh, comparable thing I could think of was it was sort of like dog music. Okay. It had, you know, kind of minor swing kind of vibe to it. it. They were amazing. And Fred was doing stuff on the banjo that I'd never heard anybody do. And I was like, oh, my God, this, you know. Uh-huh. So I, I taped a bunch of that stuff. Then they they finished. It was pretty late, you know, and they kind of all were breaking up. And I was like, man, that was really cool. I'm going to try to find them tomorrow. And I start heading back to the campsite. And then I, I hear... Like over my left shoulder as I'm walking away, I hear these like faint strains of what sounded like Bach being played on the banjo. I was like, oh my God. So I turn back around and I go following that sound, you know, Mm -hmm. and I look and there's Fred, the same banjo player, sitting in a lawn chair playing Yezu, Joy Man's Desiring on the banjo. Wow. And I mean, it was like I was struck by lightning, literally. And I just was like... I remember saying out loud to him, that's exactly what I want to try. That's what I've been trying to do. And that this is it. And it was like an epiphany. Yeah. And um, I sat down and I kept the tape rolling, man. And, um, you know, I started asking him all these questions like, what, how, how, how were you doing that? What yeah. you? And, and he, he was really cool. And, you know, because oh, well, I'm using this drop C, you know, he dro- had dropped his fourth string to C he was like, you know, that's the original banjo tuning from the, you know, quote, classic era of banjo tuning. I was like, oh, really? I hadn't heard anything about that. Sure. And uh, he was like, oh, yeah, they, they, you know. And he goes, I just, 
you know, I do a lot of these Bach cello suites, and I just read the bass clef and pretend like it's cello, uh, treble clef. I drop my string down, <laughs> and I just, and I was like, and he started playing some some of the cello suite stuff, and um, yeah. I was like, oh my god, yeah. And so I, I literally stuck with Fred there for a couple of hours, just asking him questions, absorbing, and, and taping, good. taping yeah. it, and um. That's incredible. This course is before email and cell phones and all that stuff. So I, I didn't, I just, you know, I left and I, I found him a couple other times that weekend. But, you know, I got home and I had this tape and I was listening to it and I'm, I was so inspired. I got recordings of all the Bach cello suites, all the Bach violins, sonatas and partitas. I started just gobbling that stuff he up. He could play all that. Not all of it. He could, okay. he could play, you know, he had transcribed certain uh movements of of different okay. ones so he wasn't playing all of it but he played enough of it for me to go that's where i can start because it's a single instrument and even though the, like the cello is you know down an octave quite a bit yeah. from the banjo basically i can just the range of the cello was not outlandish compared to the banjo in fact the bach some of the bach pieces don't exceed the range of the banjo wow and some of the violin pieces don't always exceed the range. You have to, you know, so this is probably a whole nother topic, but um, it's like a sliding scale, basically, the range of an instrument. You know, you can mm -hmm. take a low instrument that's way lower in pitch, but if it has the same relative range, you can slide those pitches Transpose up. it. You yeah. transpose it up. So um, I started learning that idea and um, started doing these transcriptions. And I remember going back to school and I had had a, I had a couple of these cello pieces worked out and I remember playing them for a master class and, and the teachers, the teacher kind of went nuts. He was like, man, that is the coolest thing. And so I Are, kept, do you have anything prepared that we could get like a little um, taste of, of something? Well, whether it's one of the cello suites or the, I remember this, I'm not in the right tuning, but fourth string should be tuned down a whole step okay so uh, but so, yes yeah, that so. was that was one of the first things i did uh -huh. and um so they they were like thought that was really great and wow. so that encouraged me even more and i started doing that and got so involved in that that um i started taking my banjo to my lessons with my guitar player mm -hmm. john patacula who was totally supportive and what a uh, difference from yeah the, exactly your prior i mean experience. both the teacher that suggested that I might try doing that classical on the banjo mm -hmm. and, and, and John, John right. um, were stark contrast to that curmudgeon yeah, from before. Uh, it's like how to be a bad teacher and then how to be a good teacher. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, so that, that really started to take off. And I was obsessed with it. I was just absolutely obsessed with it. That's all I did was listen to Bach and, you know, transcribe stuff and work on it. And um, I got so into it that, at that point, I was just so obsessed with it. I, I went, ah, heck with it. And I, I left music school, and I just continued working on it. And and uh, John was really cool because he would call me and get me to c come play at at VCU 
for for various things like a master class or whatever, where I could have a chance to play one of my tune or one of box my transcriptions and get some feedback and you know kind of be in that process. Uh, so kind of to catch back up a little bit, I actually went back to Galax two more years following that initial one, mm-hmm. just because that's the only way I knew to find Fred. Yeah, and I and I found him, and I would go and pick his brain, and eventually. I think by the by the third year that I was there, Fred had moved to Charlottesville, which is just an hour from here, mm-hmm. uh, and he was running the Prism Coffee House, which at that time, w- w- Fred turned the Prism Coffee House into literally the premier listening room on the East Coast. I mean, he had Tony Rice in there, Bela and Tony Trishka doing a duo show together. He had yeah. like Patty Keenan from the Bothy Band. I mean, he, you know, Pierre yeah. Ben Suzanne, just... It was, you know, yeah, the top notch, the top notch, and it was a listening room. Mm. Um, no alcohol. It was coffee and cookies and about a hundred seats, and and people. It was an old house. Yeah, that's great. It was awesome. Anyway, so Fred, you know, very reluctantly, but agreed to give me lessons. Okay. Uh, he was like, yeah, I guess. So. With, I mean, at at that point, was he still, at least in terms of the classical playing? Was he still quite a bit beyond what what yeah where you were yeah okay he was beyond me in in all ways musically yeah um, and and Fred I will say you know you meet very few people in your life that you meet them and you go that person is a true artist mm-hmm. like whatever uh, discipline but that person is like. Whatever it is, that person has it, and they're an artist. And Fred, was, I knew that was Fred was still is probably one of the most genuine, sort of ingenious cats I've ever met. Wow, I'm gonna have to see what I can he's, dig he's, up. It he's sounds, got sounds a like Facebook, a very fascinating person. He's got a Facebook page that's called Fred Boyce Musician. Okay, or, you know, it's a musician page yeah. for Fred Boyce, and he's got old some old video footage and so forth on yeah, there. Yeah, I'll, so I'll it's, it's amazing. I'll take I mean, it up. Fred. Wow, I can't say enough about Fred. Um, but so I started taking lessons from Fred. I'd drive to Charlottesville once a week, um, you know, and Fred just like opened the vault. You know, I mean, yeah. he 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 had a whole system of scales worked out. Uh, you know, single string. Uh, you know that single string style mm-hmm. scales for the diatonic scale chords and stuff. And I'd never, you know, I didn't really know about that. And he had uh, quite a complex system of playing uh, Irish. Oh, yeah. He had a, he called it a Scruggs style. He would do the ornaments instead of on one string. He would... had this which it's hard to explain but it's it's sort of a role yeah uh but i i sort of learned a little bit of that from him i don't really do that anymore but he had a he he was he had a whole huge repertoire he could go to an irish music a jam session and fall right in mm-hmm. you know, he, he was really good at it wow but yeah he he showed me he got me started on some easier pieces you know um uh i think one of them
stuff like that. Yeah. It wasn't having to tackle a Bach prelude, right? But it was. So he showed me some intermediate steps that I could take. Some of these tunes he had gotten from classical guitar, he had adapted. Okay. Um, some easy keyboard pieces he had adapted. So sort of he gave me that missing part. Uh, another piece was... Uh, Just stuff that wasn't so hard that that you you know could use to develop the chops to to do the harder stuff. Yeah, and um, there were a bunch of other ones. Uh, a lot of them were with a fourth string tuned down sure. to C. Um, but yeah, so I studied. I did that with Fred for about a year, and um, and through that I got he let me. I played at the Prism a bunch of times, which was really cool. Solo. Um, I did some solo, and then. Um, by then, I had started. Oh, my point with that was that Fred had gave me a bunch, some recordings, these old cassette tapes that he had of him doing various things, and one of them was him with a guitar player playing like Bach two part inventions, and the hmm. guitar player was playing the left hand of the piano yeah. with the keyboard, and Fred was playing the, the right hand. I'm trying to think what else. There were some other things on there, but I was like, oh. That's a great idea. So I recruited my teacher, former teacher, John Patacula. I said, hey, you want to learn some duets with me, uh, some of these inventions and stuff like that? And he was like, okay. So I would get with John, and we worked, started working out like two-part inventions, yeah. and I started giving him um, like easy keyboard pieces, like some Handel, uh, some Bach, Scarlatti, but some easier stuff, not like you know, there's some pieces that are a little more basic and, um, mm. and he would learn the left hand and, and, you know, he would have to transpose some notes on the guitar, but, or he would tune his D or his E string down to D sometimes, uh -huh. but we made it work. We cobbled together kind of a repertoire of these duo pieces and we started doing gigs and then we were encouraged and we started coming up with more and more repertoire for banjo and guitar. Did that form the basis for your book that you eventually wrote? Is yeah. a lot of that sort yes, of what you, the of two that. of you exactly. came up with? There's one, okay. uh, one of the books is called Bach for the Banjo or something. I think it's Bach for That's the, the Banjo. Yeah, I think. Uh, and there's a lot of guitar duets right. in there. And those are John's guitar parts. Yeah. And um, interesting. I have another book out, or used to, with more, just solo transcriptions in it. But okay. that book has some solo stuff in it. Yeah, as well. some, of, some of each. Um, I think there's even one or two dual banjo pieces yeah maybe so i might the, be misremembering but i think there's one in the back that was a, a bach piece that um on my the first recording i did i did it with a, a marimba or uh vibes oh cool uh, it was a baroque piece but uh so anyway john i started playing with john you know and we we really got into it and we played yeah. a lot together for a long time doing that duo thing and then he eventually said look you you, you got to finish your music degree I was like, hey, they won't they won't let me, you know. And he goes, No. You know, by this time John was the assistant chair of the music department, and there was a new chair of the music department. Mm -hmm. So we revisited and uh they they finally agreed to let me finish the under by then they had done away with the master's degree okay. that I wanted to get, but they let me finish my undergraduate 
degree in performance using the banjo. Okay. Great. Which I was happy to do. Yeah. Um, and I had to be embedded in the classical guitar department. Of course. Um, yeah. So I had to like shadow the classical guitar guys, do the master classes, the juries, everything they did, I did. And um, I, and I continued then my lessons with John, mm -hmm. but I, but I used my banjo. Yeah. And John cool. would teach me whatever I was working on. He would help me. So given that you came from bluegrass, I'm, I'm really curious to know, I guess, in both directions, what are some of the fundamental skills that are necessary to be able to play classical music on the banjo that bluegrassers might not be aware of? And then I guess maybe in the other direction, have you ever adapted any, I'll just call them licks, uh, are, there, are there any classical pieces that actually might lend themselves to uh, have, just adding that little extra flair to, to maybe a bluegrass context. Yeah. Um, well, the first part of that, I think for someone to go from more of the bluegrass realm into the classical realm, for me, the, the big thing was to develop the left hand because hmm. my left hand was used to not doing... Yeah. But so... The main thing, I, you know, is a lot of uh, scales, arpeggios, and slur, what they call slur studies in classical guitar, but they're really, they're hammer-ons. Mm -hmm. So slur studies, scales, arpeggios. Now, scales, uh, so, so basically the, the answer is to develop the left hand because the right hand is pretty strong from bluegrass, right? So, yeah. uh, I mean, there are a lot of wacky right hand things that I do, but you know, it, it really doesn't, it ends up since I've had that Scruggs thing, I can make, I can basically make my right hand yeah. do what I want it to do. Yeah. But the left hand was way behind. So I'd had to develop the left hand to be able to do, I don't know, stretches and weird, just weird things. And I will say that I, as part of my degree, one thing I did was I wrote a book of scales and arpeggios hmm. for, and it was based on the Segovia model. Oh, cool. Um, so what I wanted to do was to strengthen and develop the left hand, but also get the fingerboard learned in the brain. And so I did it, I ended up doing it basically single string. Right. Because if you try to do it, the, you know, the, I, and at one time I did do, I, I wrote out all the scales in the melodic style. I was, I had, I met Pat Cloud and you know, I was like, oh man, this is, you know, and it, it was, and I, I still have it somewhere. I have them all written out. Yeah. But to use that, wow. Yeah. Um, I, you know, so I, so I eventually said, look, I'm going to do closed position, single string scales and arpeggios, the basic go around the circle of fifths, mm -hmm. learn the fingerboard, develop the left hand. So what I came up with was say on the, uh, say like a G major, which... So, and then the ar accompanying arpeggio j for that, it just the triad arpeggio. arpeggio. Right. Yeah. And then, um, and these are pretty easy positions to do. And I ended up coming up with, with a way, which is in the back of the book, of a way of doing it just continuously. And I wrote the whole thing out in tab and notation, but... Uh, Going around the circle, you mean? So, yeah, so you could... 
and it just keep going. Wow. And so, and what I'm doing, which is because that's what Segovia did, is is when I get to the minor, I do the the uh, mel- the classical melodic minor, which is uh, flat third going up, but going up you have a ra- you still use the raise six and seven, but then oh. when you come back down, you flat the seven and the six. Okay. So it ends up. Uh, sorry. And I just did that because that's what classical pedagogy usually does, is they include a ascending melodic minor and a descending melodic minor. That's not, you know, Yeah, that and necessary. you just wanted to, yeah, that's, you were literally just trying to trying transfer to, it to. Exactly. And then you can do the same with the... Uh, go all the way around yeah um and that and and that whole thing really is in my mind it's not about trying to learn how to improvise and what scale to use over you know it's none of it's not that it's develop the left hand and learn the fingerboard Mm -hmm. so that's that's the point of it it's not which is kind of how classical musicians use all that is not they're not trying to learn how to improvise they're trying to develop their technique and learn the instrument and be ready for whatever yeah. that piece I, demands. Yeah, you know, since re- I don't really, you know, what, what's cool on the banjo, what, which people would relate to, is you see how the different chord, you know, like your your F shape, D shape, and bar. You watch them literally connect, and you can, you know, I'm envisioning those chord shapes, and you see yeah. the notes in between and all that, which is kind of cool. Um, but I think the most useful thing, personally is arpeggios. How you know there are a lot of different patterns. Sure. And then of course you have the these are triadic. And then there's, you know, if you want The seventh chord, yeah. which is a whole different thing. But um, I think arpeggios, personally, are way more useful um, and yeah. also help you learn the fingerboard. I mean, you can fit, you know, uh, like... Like, what's that tune? Uh, the one you're just playing? The, there's a, that was a, what is that one called? Blackberry, Blackberry Blossom. Blossom. And then there's a, uh, it's A minor, Jer- Jerusalem Ridge. Oh, right. You can do the same. You can fit, those arpeggios can yeah. be thrown into a bluegrass. Yeah, tune absolutely. way easier than you could throw a scale in. Yeah. You mean, unless, you know, obviously you can throw in a melodic melodic scale, but, you know... I, I, and it most, actually ends up sounding fairly fiddleistic yeah, at does, times. Yeah, because fiddle players do a lot of those kind mm-hmm. of arpeggios. So anyway, yeah. um, that's sort of an aside there. But, um, yeah, so I, I did that. Uh, back to your original question, I uh, developed the left hand 
to come along to play the classical stuff. And then... The one Bach lick that I've... See, when I play... When I transcribe a Bach piece... uh, I'm I'm not doing it closed and I'm not doing it totally melodic. I'm combining melodic and closed position yeah. or single string. And and my whole impetus for the way that I do the transcriptions is for it to sound as good as I can get that piece to sound. Mm-hmm. So some pieces end up being having a lot more kind of closed stuff going on and some have more melodic stuff. But it's both. Um, I mean, a few portions of what you just played are, it even falls within roles. Exactly. With the right hand. Like the. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. But since I do that, and there's a lot of times where I will uh, keep a melody line, say, on the fourth string longer than then somebody else might because I want to hear that line continue. Uh, I'm trying to think of... Oh, sorry. So right there. So I'm, I'm here. Sorry. Because it, you hear that, right? And there might be an easier way to do that that uses an open string. But I, I, there are a lot of places where I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to hear the line stay consistent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, so the point of that is that there are not many licks that come out of these transcriptions. Okay. You know, because they're just all over the place trying to get it to sound good. So there's there no they're not really any. Not a lot of uh, role-based stuff happening, or but I, I have found one. Okay, <laughs> and th- this is from this prelude. And there's near the end. There's a this line. It goes on up, but I've figured out that it's a great D. Yeah. Oh yeah, cool. So, uh, and you can you can conti- you know continue the effect, yeah. but the basic lick that's right out of the Bach pieces. Yeah. So that's one that I you know, but I I know that Bela when he approaches the classical stuff tries to do more of it enclosed single string stuff so that he can get licks out of it. Really? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Like, he, like, I think that's kind of what he was really looking for in that when he first started, he wanted to digest Bach and then take it and use it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think Adam, my friend, Adam Larrabee, um, had a conversation or two with Bela about the classical, about the Bach. And he, I think he referenced that he intentionally does more of it closed or single string so that he can take that and use it somewhere else. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and my, I'm completely the opposite. I, I'm trying to make it sound a certain way. So I, so most of it's not closed 
per se. Have you developed an instinct for which classical pieces are possible or maybe um, work out particularly well on banjo? You know, I think I finally have. I mean, I can kind of look at a piece of music and, and tell, just look at the score. And, yeah. and I can go, yeah. Is that a range but thing? It's mostly a range thing. Um, but but there's also, uh, the, like, like, there's a lot of recorder or flute type things that, that I w- want them to work, mm-hmm. especially Bach, Telemann, that kind of stuff. But the flute stuff, they can change octaves and go between octaves. So, you know, with just the there's an flick octave of a button. finger, yeah. there's an octave hole there. Uh so you end up at, you know, to the point where the, you can look at those and go, ah, yeah, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> I mean, you can change it. I mean, you can yeah. always change the the notes, um, and I'm not against that at all. Um, but you know, there's certain pieces when you hear, or when I look at the score and I go, I can tell I'm going to have to change that enough to where it's going to change the character of it. So I pass it over. Yeah, gotcha. When guitarists go from folk guitar to classical guitar, there's typically an accompanying string change from the steel to the classical. Now, I've I've noticed that you do have nylon string banjos sitting here, but for the most part, actually, those are wound. Oh, those really? Are all wound. Those are steel still yeah, steel strings. Yeah. Oh well, I guess my point uh, <laughs> that maintains my point then. Yeah. Um, I imagine that has occurred to you to, oh, yeah. to try all this on. Uh, nylon string yeah, I've banjos tried, and i've and, tried it and I, you know uh i tr- have played stuff on nylon and i've tr- kind of looked into the classic banjo thing which i love that i love that stuff yeah. and um for me what i'm wanting to hear and what i'm wanting to do the picks and the steel strings give me uh precision sustain incisiveness that I want, whereas the the bare fingers and the nylon strings, or even the picks on nylon strings, yeah. it, it just doesn't. The sustain is not is not there. Yeah, um, a little too rubber bandy kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. So, so I've always gone back to finger picks and steel strings, and you know the other part of that is uh, just you know I learned to play with finger picks and bluegrass banjo, and I didn't you know when I first came over came into trying to do this my what i heard in my head before i ever tried to do it was i heard a bluegrass banjo playing bach that's what i knew in my mind my mind's ear if you will you know it's like <laughs> that's what i want to hear yeah i don't want to like add three strings to the banjo and and put not you know i just i wanted to hear that bluegrass style banjo with picks playing bach the material yeah yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense and then the the instrument itself, which I want to hear what this instrument is that you're playing, but I guess I'll just lead in by saying what you have appears to be, would be very nice as a bluegrass instrument. And it I'm is. wondering what would a classical banjoist want from an instrument and maybe what a bluegrass player wants overlaps quite a bit with what a classical player wants, but maybe take us through that yeah. of what type of things either setup wise or from the instrument itself. Uh, you well, look for this. Um, the short answer is the only difference between this and what I would do for bluegrass is a looser head. Mm-hmm. That's really, I mean, this banjo, this um, so is a flathead style 75 TB with a Robin Smith reproduction neck. Wow. 
It is a slightly radius fingerboard, but not crazy. It's a, I think it's 10 by 16 compound radius. So okay. it's fairly flat. I mean, it's a, a slight radius. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, for me, my left hand actually prefers a flat fingerboard, but my right hand likes a radius bridge. Huh. It's when I go back and forth, I know the biggest stumbling block for me is my right hand doesn't know what to do. And it's very little difference. But yeah. the difference between a flat bridge where all the strings are exactly basically at the same height uh-huh. versus a bridge that has a little radius on it, that difference, I don't know. I feel like my right hand wow. is, is, likes the little radius thing better. Whereas my left hand. Do you find yourself. Hitting wrong strings yeah, or, or I, missing I, notes, yeah, or, missing okay. notes hitting, and and maybe if I just stayed with a flat thing long enough, I would I would get used to it. But I've yeah. been using radius for a long time. Um, but so to answer your question, um, this banjo, when I first got this banjo, I had a Frank. I was playing in a bluegrass band, mm-hmm. um, a, a fairly local regional band uh, called Heritage, real traditional vocal based band, and yeah. um, you know I was. It was like play the melody and don't do anything else, basically, uh-huh. which was great. I mean, I enjoyed that. But I had a Frank Neat neck on it, on this banjo, which yeah. had a flat fingerboard. And uh, and I had the head cranked up to about an A. And man, the thing just thundered. It was mm-hmm. really powerful. So it's now this head is about a G. And it's got the Robin Smith slightly radius fingerboard on it. But that's... That's really the only difference. Wow. I, I tend to move my right hand towards the neck a lot, you know, to yeah. get that warmer sound, that neck pickup yeah. sound. Um, but... Yeah. It still does... Even at a even at a G, that's perfectly within range yeah. of being able to do that kind of material yeah. too. So so it works for both. That's really and, cool. Um, you know, Robin's neck I think has a little more. One thing that I do like that I will say is the fingerboard is a little higher than the level of the of the tone ring. Okay. If if you get my drift, it, it sits so up it a little sits bit up above a the hoop. little bit above the hoop. Now okay. the hoop can change, obviously depending on how tight you crank the head, but the level of the tone ring is never going to change. Yeah. So that's the way I look at it: is I want the fingerboard to be just a little bit above the level of the tone ring. And is that so you can maintain that's, a lower action? That may be part of it. The main reason thing I like is I can get up here near the neck, and I don't have to worry about my thumb pick or finger picks hitting the head of the banjo. Interesting. And that's, um, it, it just gives you a little more room to get up there and get those real mellow sounds without getting that. Yeah. And I know when I've played um, a flat fingerboard with a more, where the fingerboard is a little more flush with the tone ring, I'm not used to it and I'll I'll get some of that tappy tap stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's something that I like and that I purposefully got Robin to do. In doing that, I think there's a slightly bit more wood, a little bit more wood in the neck because it's a little bit taller. Okay. I don't know. And I'm not sure the mix between whether the mahogany is is taller and or the or the uh, rosewood rose finger. Wood. So, but whatever, there's a little more wood, just a slight bit more wood somewhere in there because, 
to do that. Yeah, very but, interesting. Um, and this is a it's a mahogany neck, so I like I like mahogany because it's you know a little warmer. You can. I, there's a lot of. Yeah, really sings. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, anything? I mean, since we're discussing your banjo, anything else gear-wise that is important to you in terms of finger picks or strings or bridges or any of those types of yeah. preferences? Well, this bridge is is a Robin Smith. It was his. He had a timeless. He called it timeless. Yeah. He used old wood. Right. Uh, it's one. Of, it's one of his timeless bridges, which I really like it. Um, you know, I do use these weird finger picks. These are. Um, new nationals uh -huh. and while they were still national they were they were called np2 mm -hmm. and they had np2 i think they were steel i'm not sure if they were nickel plated but they had brass nickel or maybe i think they were called steel uh i'm not sure they're stainless steel whatever and yeah. then they had these these gold np2 gold and, you know, I went through a period where I was trying every finger pick known to man, yeah. literally. I tried every finger pick because I was really worried about, mostly I was, I was trying to get away from pick noise. And, and, and tone too, but I was really focused a lot on the pick noise. And to me, a lot of picks that I tried had more pick noise. And then I, I, I got these NPT, NP2 gold you know, they're like 10 bucks or something on Amazon. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, there's something about it. I really liked them. They're, they're sort of muted. I don't know if you can. They, yeah, they, I can they, tell. There's not that much. They're not as edgy as a nickel-plated. And I don't know why, but they just are, and I like them. And so uh, I bought a bunch of them. Yeah. I wish I'd bought more because... Are they gone now? They're gone. Hmm. Um, National was bought by, I'm going to say D'Addario, but... Some I'm not big... Sure. Yeah, somebody big bought them, and they apparently discontinued these gold picks. Now, hmm. they're not really... I don't know what... It, they say gold. I don't... Gold-plated yeah, something some kind probably. Of, yeah. I mean, the, the gold, whatever it is, will wear off, and underneath it, you see what is either steel or nickel, yeah. whatever, you know... Um, because I've gone through a bunch of them. Yeah. And I've, I've got, you know, I don't have that many left, so I'm a little freaked out. But I just like them. Now, it's time to a, source your own gold plater, yeah, I guess. A good runner-up to these in my, to my ear is, is the uh, same pick, but in the brass. Okay. Um, I've got a bunch of those. And um, they sound almost as good, but not quite to me. And Fred was somebody back a long time ago, Fred used brass finger picks. And the reason he got into those was because they were softer, warmer yeah. sound, a little less noise, I think. That's, and, um, that's what I would assume is the reason. Yeah. So I, I had been using brass finger picks for a long time, but I was used a lot of Dunlop brass finger yeah. picks. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, I sort of got into, when I got this banjo, I sort of started trying all kinds of new stuff. I, I got this banjo in about 2015. Okay. And... Um, I went through the whole thing. Reevaluated yeah, all yeah. the pieces. And I ended yeah. up back with the Robin Smith neck and I ended up using brass finger picks and then I found these, you know. So and I used the the uh uh blue chip thumb pick, which to me the tone 
I love the sound of these things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, string, if you want to... Yeah, keep going. Uh, Sorry. My, my favorite strings really are the uh, straight-up strings by Roger Simonoff. Simonoff, Sam. But they're unbelievably expensive. They're like twice as expensive as any other string set. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the strings I have on this banjo now are the Huber, Steve Huber strings, which I, I really like. And I, I'm hoping to maybe just go with the Huber and save a lot of yeah. money. Um, Roger, if you're listening, give me a break. Because um, I buy a lot of strings. And I've bought, I've bought a lot of strings from him. But anyway, um, they're really expensive. But they sound really good. They have a great tone and they have an elasticity to them somehow that really feels good with the right hand. Yeah, you're, yeah I mean, they the, sort of, the, I don't know what it's sort of an elastic feel. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is what you're referring to, but the, I think the whole selling point of those is that the it's equal tension on each of the strings. Yeah. I don't know if that's all yeah. real. <laughs> I mean, I guess yeah. it is. Yeah. But is it worth twice as much? I don't know. I, one thing I like about this, and apparently when I, uh, when I went to Steve's website, he only sells one set. Really? And they're... Uh, Gosh, am I going to fit? I think they're 10, 11, 12 and a half, 20. That sounds right. Um, and I and to me, sometimes the, the 13s, a, a lot of people, I was playing 13 on the third string. Mm-hmm. And the, the pull-offs, you know, the... Is a little bit tougher. You can get that extra little snap. Yeah, so I really like Steve's set, and I'm, I'm trying to just, maybe I'm going to stick with these. Um, cool. So that's that's it. Anything else I forgot to ask you that you'd like to demonstrate for people or tell people about your yeah. playing? Well, I'll put a plug in for Adam Larrabee. You know, Adam is an incredible musician. Um, right. And he has, for some unknown reason, gravitated toward the banjo um, with his musical yeah. prowess. Heck of a guitarist, too. He but yeah, a, he's, 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 a, you know, banjo a top level jazz guitar player yeah. and uh, and band leader, arranger, all that stuff. Highly trained musician. Anyway, he's fallen in love with the banjo, which is great. But uh, so anything Adam does, I think is, you know, he's, he's really also enjoys teaching and has really, you know, he's been teaching at Bela's camp and at the Banjo Summit, banjo Summit stuff too. like that. Yeah, so he's exactly. really, really great. But anyway, he, um, he and I have collaborated and he, I commissioned him to write a work for me because that's one of the things I've got to do is not just play Bach and Telemann and stuff, but try to get composers to write new stuff mm-hmm. as well. And um, I've got a lot of commissions in the works, but the main one I'm working on right now is uh, 24 Preludes for Solo Banjo, which I've got the first volume is out and recorded. Yeah. And I'm, I'm working on the second volume. Um, and there are books to accompany it. And Adam has the books it too, yeah. to accompany it. So those are cool. And those are, you know, some of those are really tough, but if you like just pick one and decide you're going to, some of those pieces, when I first started learning them, I was like, man, this is impossible. But I stuck with it. And eventually I, I was like, wow, it's not hard at all now. And and I realized after a while that, that my technique had actually jumped up a level from learning all those preludes.
Now, t 24 pieces, I, I assume that corresponds to one each in every major and minor Correct. key. exactly. Beyond that, what was Adam's assignment from you? Well, when I, f I first went to him, I was like, hey, I want to commission you to write something. And we didn't, I didn't have an idea, and neither uh -huh. did he. And we sat down and we were kind of talking about it. In classical music, it's, it's a tradition to write 24 preludes for any given instrument. Bach started, started that with his well-tempered clavier, you know, mm. he did two books, of, he did two of them, you know, a prelude and a fugue in every key major and minor. But, um, you know, that's gone on and many instruments have that same, somebody's written 24 preludes for it and uh, same thing for classical guitar, Ponce, Manuel Ponce, who's just a wonderful composer who's uh, in the early, early 20th century that Segovia commissioned a lot of works from Ponce wrote 24 preludes for the, for the guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, so we, we started talking about that and Adam was like, you know, that's, that would be a really cool thing is to have 24 preludes for the banjo. So I was like, yeah, that, that's really great. Okay. So that's how we got on that. I didn't anticipate some of them being quite as hard. But, but after that, it was open-ended. He, he could just write yeah. whatever his yeah. oh, imagination yeah. can. Okay. I didn't know if there were any no, other no, criteria. No. Well, you know, one thing we did s decide is we, we decided not to retune. Like each key, we're just leaving the banjo. Everything is in standard, in standard tuning. tuning. Now, Amazing. there is one piece that I'm working on that's in B major that Adam, at some point he said, you know, we might have to bend the rules here, and there's an easier way to play this one if you drop your fifth string to F sharp. Mm -hmm. And I was like, nope, not doing it. And I had a fingering worked out, you know, to play it still in standard tuning. And then after a while, I was like, eh, maybe I'm going to give up. <laughs> so I, I've been playing it with that, the fifth string tuned down a half step, but... I won't tell anyone. Yeah, don't tell anybody. Cool. Um, and then I've, uh, I'm, I've got another... Uh, commission that I'm premiering at a chamber music festival, believe it or not, this yeah. August. Um, oh, great. It's a new piece by a guy named Steve Snowden who's in Boston, and um, it's for banjo, piano, and cello. Oh, how cool. And it's a really cool piece, very modern sounding, yet lyrical. You know, it's not like atonal or anything like yeah. that. And um, Are you already rehearsing this? And, I, I'm uh, I'm learning it myself, yeah. working really hard. It's It's pretty hard what i've realized is when you commission a composer to write for the banjo you're in for it because either they don't know enough about the banjo to know how it works that well or like adam he knows the banjo but he know you know he wants to write something really cool so either way it, it can be hard but you got your work cut out for you yeah, yeah that's cool I, i'm gonna start rehearsing it with a piano player soon i hope and then really the the players who are gonna play it at the concert we won't rehearse till we're at the music festival. So wow. I know it's a little scary. Whole different world. I yeah. mean, I'm used to getting thrown into gigs, but I, I know that I'll just need to know G, C, and D chords and I'll, I'll be fine. <laughs> hey, yeah. It's kind of yeah. nice. Hey, so since, since you are likely one of the only classical music authorities, a lot of my listeners may have been exposed to maybe give like a top three, it doesn't have to have anything to do with the banjo. If, if, if the listeners just need to, 
have a few classical music selections in their uh, in their music collection. Um, yeah. Well, I'm a huge Segovia fan. Um, I got sucked into that classical guitar thing, and so any of Segovia's recordings, especially if it's Bach, mm-hmm. I, I like. Um, but then also, um, I really the Bach cello suites would be a must. Do you have um, a favorite performer? Um, no, I don't. I would, I don't, I don't, I've got a gazillion different versions mm-hmm. or by different people, um, but I don't have a favorite. Um, I would steer away from, well, I, I won't say who to steer away from. Okay. Um, I would look for the more obscure performances. Actually, okay. um, Rostopovich is a good one, the Russian cellist. Um, he, you know, he's long since passed away, but he's got those recorded. Anna Bilsmer, who is a German. Uh, Anna is A-N-A, Bilsma. I can't remember. B-Y-L-S-M-A, Bilsma, something like Anna Bilsma, who plays these on the Baroque cello, which is different in that the gut, their gut strings and the shorter fingerboard scale. is a sh- shorter scale yeah. and all that. And uh, so it's sort of a, a little more uh, earthy kind of rendition, which I, I prefer. the idea is it's more period it's more, correct it's more right? period correct which yeah. obviously i can't get hung up on because i'm playing, playing them on <laughs> yeah the you've already thrown that out the window. yeah but th- those are good and yeah, um cool. you know those would be my top um and of course the violin sonatas and partitas by Bach. okay great well hey thank you so much for your time hey, and your hospitality I'm and sharing your talents with us really cool here hearing about it yeah and anybody if they want to explore more can go to my website please yeah. john thank you for thank you for adding that i yeah. usually ask but and there's here, here. You know, the recordings and all that stuff available there yeah all right well it's been a pleasure it's been wonderful thanks for coming All right, folks, that's going to do it for this interview and for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. The song clips that you heard were Hornpipe by John Bullard, Pickaway by Vic Jordan, Scarlatti's Sonata for Harpsichord in D, performed by Ralph Kirkpatrick, the prelude for solo banjo number 11 in B-flat major by John Bullard, Fugue in G minor by Andres Segovia, and finally, the Bach Cello Suite Number 3 in C Major by Honor Bilsma. Thank you once again to Richard Chirac Guth. He's today's VIP supporter of the show. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a VIP supporter yourself or email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Hope to see some of you at either IBMA or the Great Lakes Music Camp. Uh, at any rate, keep in touch and I'll see you next time.